bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In our broadcast tonight, we shall look at another sub thing based on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 2. So far from what we've been looking at from Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, we have seen the sub theme of repentance from dead works, which we could paraphrase into turning away from activities that cannot save us in eternity and turning to God in faith. So we have activities that many people get engaged in that will not save them rather than turning to God in faith only for their salvation. So we're talking about turning away from doing things that are dead, the things that will lead to death, and turning to what really brings life, which is faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that faith that brings salvation to us. So we looked at the conclusion of faith towards God, which is turning to God in faith. We made a special note of the fact that, yes, we are saved by faith, but we must now live our lives by faith henceforth. We cannot start out in faith and then continue outside of faith, like the Galatians were trying to do when Paul admonished them. And so we noted that the just, those who are justified, those who have been saved through faith, shall continue to live by faith. We made the following notes as a result in our parting shot, in our conclusion, that with God, nothing shall be impossible. God may ask us to do things that may seem to be impossible, but we must understand that with him, there's nothing that is impossible. And so by faith, we must stick to doing whatever it is that God wants us to do. We also said that what is impossible with men is possible with God. With men, it may be impossible, but with God, it is always possible. And then we noted that if you can believe it, then whatever you ask will surely come to pass, will surely be possible unto you. However, we noted that when we pray and we believe, we know that we will receive it. We must make sure that what we are believing is in line with the will of God. We cannot be reckless, we cannot be careless, believing whatever we like. And then we noted that although God can do the impossible, although God can do anything, because there's nothing too hard for God to do, yet, if it is not in line with his will and purpose, he will not do it. So the fact that God does not do something does not diminish his ability in the slightest. His ability to do things remains intact. And then we noted that God responds to our faith. Not our anxieties, not our worries, not our fears, not our concerns, not our cares, but to our faith. And so we must always come to God in faith. We must always express our faith in God. And then we noted that if we're going to live by faith, it means that we must be hearing from God. It means that the word of God must be sacrosanct for us because God will speak to us in various ways. However, it will be by the word of God. He's not going to tell us something that is outside of his word. God will speak to us by his word. And yes, we say that God speaks. He is not an idol that is just a stump of wood or some machination or imagination of the hearts of people. Our God speaks, our God sees, our God knows, our God has ability. Finally, we said that we must always remember that it is not enough to go to God in faith. We must also grow in faith towards God. So today, we want to begin a new sub thing. And I'll read Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 1 to 2, the new something will be in verse 2 actually, but I'll just read from verse 1 for completeness. Hebrews 6, verse 1 and verse 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Done verse 1, which is basically not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. The Bible is here telling us that we need to grow away from the rudiments. We don't have to be laying the rudiments again. Remember that what brought us to this point was the illustration of a football match, which I had given that the team played so badly that the next day they went for training. The first thing the coach did was to raise a football and said, this is leather, it's round, it has air in it. It is kicked with the foot, not with the hand. And the only person who is permitted to handle the ball is a goalkeeper, and that's within the 18-yard box. And that the goal of kicking the ball is to put the ball in the net of the opponent, not in your net. So it gives you an idea of how badly that team must have played. And so based on that, we came here and we said, we need to go back to the foundation. We need to go back to the basics and find out what is it that we are not getting right from the foundation. If the foundation be destroyed, the Bible says, what can the righteous do? So if the foundation is not well laid, we must break it down and rebuild. But hopefully this will be the last time such a foundation will be rebuilt in our lives because we need to grow in maturity. We need to grow beyond the rudiments and become mature. So having done repentance from dead works and faith towards God, we move to the third sub-theme, which is the doctrine of baptisms. The doctrine of baptisms. What I'll be doing essentially is giving an introduction to this sub-theme. The word doctrine simply means teaching or instruction. Sometimes it could actually mean more than just the teaching. It could mean the lifestyle that arises from the teaching. However, in this particular instance, we're talking of teaching or instruction on baptisms. Now, the word baptisms, we can note there, is in plural. More than it being in plural, in some translations, it's actually translated washings, as in washing the cloth. So, we'd say we want to discuss the teachings or instructions about purification rites through washings. I'm going to explain this and break it down as much as possible, but I want us to have a sense of what is going on here. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jews. The Jews traditionally were Judaists. Now, some of them had been converted to Christianity. However, they continued with their old ways of Judaism. And so the epistle of Hebrews was written to them to let them understand that Judaism and Christianity are not even similar in the slightest. They are completely different. That whilst one is a shadow, the other is the real deal. And you cannot compare a shadow with the real deal. So to continue with the shadow is to be holding on to air. Whereas the real deal is there, is a substance and it can be held onto. So in discussing the issue of baptism or washings, let's do a very quick explanation here. The word baptism as used here in Hebrews 6 2 is the Greek word baptismo or in the plural baptisma and it means simply to wash something. Let me read Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. It's actually translated that in only four places in the Bible, at least in the New Testament, only four places. Mark chapter 7 verse 4 and verse 8 and we will get the sense of what is being said there. Mark chapter 7 verse 4. The Bible is explaining here how the Jews live their lives. He said, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing, that's the baptismus now, the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. In verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking here. He says, for laying aside the commandment of God, 
you hold the tradition of men, the washing with that same word baptism, which is translated baptism, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things. The same word is used in Hebrews 9, 10 and here Hebrews 6, 2. Only those four places is that word washing used. But essentially, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to us, to the Judaists and to other people who are coming from maybe other religions, is that when you become a Christian, you do not have need for those continuous washings, what we call ablution. I think the Muslims still practice it till today, where they clean the outer part as a figure of coming before God in cleansing before they worship him. Hence, the Jews were being told that they must understand that they can no longer be relying on washing things, the washing of things, the washing of their hands, of their faces, of the external, and claim that they are doing what God wants them to do. And so we are told that baptism is not the same thing as the washings, even though that is the sense in which it is being discussed. Yet the writer is trying to emphasize the issue of baptisms rather than washings, but he's taking them from what they know and bringing them to what they ought to know, where the state in which they ought to be. So that whilst Judaism requires that you wash often, Christianity does not require that. For Christianity, baptism is done once and for all. Once you are baptized, you are baptized. You no longer require to be baptized more than once. You are baptized only one time. The sad part is that today, because of the way people jump around from one church to the other and you get to a new church, the church insists that you must be baptized, then you are baptized. And then you go to another church and it insists that you must be baptized, then you are baptized. Each one is coming up with different doctrines about baptisms. And with the different doctrines of baptisms, they are insisting that people be baptized in their own church, which is not scriptural. If you are baptized under Christ, it is a once and for all thing, as distinct from Judaism, where the washings had to take place Every time, like we read in Mark chapter 7, 4, when time they come back from the market, they washed. Then they washed their pots, they washed their pants, they washed everything. With baptism under Christ, there is a greater significance than just the mere outward washing. There's a greater significance as far as the issue of washings are concerned. In Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, when the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking concerning the Pharisees and the scribes. He said this from verse 25 to 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Now, he's going beyond the illustration of a physical vessel to discussing them themselves. They are the vessels who are washing the outward, but inside there's extortion, there is self-indulgence. In verse 26 says, blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So he's saying here, the washings and is not the issue. The issue is what is happening on the inside. I think is in the same Matthew chapter 15, where the Lord spoke about what happens on the inside. When he said it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And he talked about the things that are inside the heart. Let me read from verse 18 or so of Matthew 15. It says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth, 
come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Still speaking about the washings, the issue of washings. So he was trying to tell them that what is important is what is happening on the inside. Not necessarily what is happening on the outside. Of course, if the inside is clean, the outside will be clean. But to clean the outside and leave the inside unclean becomes a problem. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, I'll take a portion of verse 20 and then read on to verse 21, which is where we really have some meat to chew them. Speaking about the issue of Noah and his ark, this is for who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, and then in parentheses, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a figure of the death and resurrection of Christ. We shall look more at that as we continue with the study in other broadcasts. But what he's saying here is that it has to do with having a good conscience before God by the time you are going for baptism. When we get to some places, we'll be able to explain it better. So we must understand that it is not the outer washing of pots and pans or the outer washing of our hands, of our faces, of our bodies, whereas we still bear the consciousness of guilt in our hearts. I can do all the physical washings and yet the consciousness that I am guilty is still stuck there. But he's saying that by the time we come to baptism, we are dealing with a conscience that is clear before God by the time we are being baptized. Something happens in us. So there is more to baptism than just washing, which is the import of what we are trying to introduce here. That is not about the washing. It's about the significance of baptism. That's basically what we want to discuss here. The significance of baptism. The issue of the answer of a good conscience. The answer of a clear conscience, a conscience that is clear of guilt, where we stand before God and we know within us that every form of guilt has been removed. And then we come for baptism. Baptism does not clear of guilt. Baptism comes as a result of the answer of a good conscience before God. In John chapter 15, verse 3, when the Lord was speaking to his disciples before he went to the cross, as he was speaking about he being divine, and they being the branches, he made a remark in verse 3. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean. So by the word, when we come to God through salvation, the word of God that brought salvation to us, cleanses us, deals with that issue in our hearts. We are cleansed by the word. Baptism takes place after that aspect. I'm trying to give a scriptural background to our discussion on baptism, moving away from the rituals of washings, which is what many people think because baptism, as many of us know, what we call Christian baptism, is done by immersing somebody in water. And many people believe that as you immerse in water, it is cleansing sin out of your life. No, that's not what it's doing. The issue of sin is dealt with at salvation. Without it, you will not be saved. Now we are going to look at the instruction on baptism. But first, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, reading from verse 9 to 11. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, 
nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. If these things are still in your life, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Even if you say you're a Christian. But then in verse 11, it says, And such were some of you. You were, if you are born again, you used to engage in these activities. But you were washed. When the word of God came, you were washed. When you received the word of God into your heart, you were washed. But you were sanctified by the Spirit of God when the Spirit of God came into your life. But you were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. So you were washed. You have been washed. By the time you are coming for baptism, the washing has already taken place. What you are doing is a physical act that describes what actually took place in the spiritual. Maybe we'll explain this later, but it's important to explain some of it now. In many developing countries, especially in Africa, well, particularly in Nigeria, we know that people move from one political party to another political party, and they do those things as often as depending on what their whims and caprices would dictate to them. They just move from one party, go to the next party, and so on and so forth. Now, when they move from one party to the next, usually what happens is that they would have made some underground movements with their colleagues in the other party, would have agreed that they were moving. Newspaper reports would have been telling us that, oh, this person has moved from one political party to the next political party. Then a rally is arranged at some later date. At that rally, the politician will now come with his supporters and denounce the old party and announce himself to belong to the new party. That is what baptism does. That is why baptism is a public thing that we do. We're talking of Christian baptism. When we do it, what we are saying is that that thing that we left behind, the wall that we left behind, Satan that we left behind, we now publicly declare that we have left Satan completely. We have left the deeds of the flesh completely behind. Now we are 100% for Christ. Now we are a part of the body of Christ. That's what we are doing in Christian baptism, essentially. That's what we are saying. However, that change took place when we first got born again. But a time comes when we do it publicly. So in the early church, those things were done pari passu. For example, if we read Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, this was after Peter had preached that first sermon. The Bible tells us in verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. After they had received the word of God, which had done the cleansing, then they were baptized. A sign, a figure that they had left the past and they have now entered into a new dispensation, a newness of life, as is described in Romans chapter 6. These are things that we shall look at in the weeks ahead. So the word of God does the cleansing. Christian baptism, or what we call water baptism, is a physical act that we do to show what has taken place. That brings us to another thing that we need to clear by way of introduction. In baptism, people get confused between what we call Christian baptism and the baptism of John the Baptist. Acts chapter 19. I read from verse 1, probably stop at verse 5 or thereabouts. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, please note the use of language, some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, 
that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It was a baptism that took place when people came and said, Ah, we've heard this thing. Our hearts are pricked. We want to change. We want to repent. So they came to John and were baptized. It became a symbol of a people who had changed. However, it did not give a clear conscience. Now, we'll go to Matthew chapter 3, and then we'll see one or two things in Matthew chapter 3 that arose from the baptism of John. Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 to verse 8. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, that is, went out to John the Baptist, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. In water baptism, you don't confess sin. What you are doing is you are confessing the Lord Christ. You are confessing that you are not a part of Christ. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. What is he saying there? He's saying to them, it is not enough to come and be dunked in water. We must see that you are indeed truly repentant by your conduct, which is what is said in Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to read it. Luke chapter 3 from verse 8 to verse 14. It takes off from where Matthew stopped. It says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from the stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So there is something to do to show that you have been baptized. You cannot say, I have repented. And yet we still find you engaging in acts that are lawless, acts that are iniquitous, and so on and so forth. So John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It was a baptism in which sinners came to demonstrate that they have left their sins behind and now they want to begin to live lives of righteousness. And John was saying to them, don't think that by coming to be dunked in water, you are automatically righteous. No, you are not. You must prove your act of righteousness by doing works of righteousness. And when they asked him, what must we do? He began to tell them, share. If you have more than one item, share with somebody who does not have. You have food, share with somebody who does not have. You are a law enforcement officer. Stop intimidating people. Stop collecting bribes. Stop forcing people to do things. Be content with your salary. Don't live above your means. And so on and so forth. Basically saying, there is a way to live. And that is what we do. Once you are born again, you are a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. So it's like saying to you, you are born again. Let us see this born again in you. Stop abusing people. Stop engaging in fornication. Stop dressing lewdly. Stop manipulating things. Stop stealing and so on and so forth. Basically, stop engaging in the works of the flesh. If indeed you are saved. Because it is an inner change that must be manifest on the outward. Some people have said God is only interested in the heart, not in the outward. No, God is interested in both the inner and the outward. It is expected that if the inward is clean, 
very soon it will manifest on the outward and the outward will also be clean. So you cannot be dressing like a prostitute and say, God does not mind. No, God minds because it's a picture of what is happening on the inside. If the inside is clean, the outside will be clean. At least you will do everything to make sure that it is clean. You cannot be living in the midst of filth and then say that my apartment is clean. You will also want to clear the pathway to your apartment. So these are the issues here. John's baptism was a baptism that sinners attended so that they could be cleansed or they could declare that they had been cleansed and they can show by engaging, by getting into that act of baptism that they have truly repented. That begs a very important question. Why then did Jesus Christ get baptized by John? Because the Bible tells us there are many scriptures, too many scriptures to read, but I'll just read one or two of them. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible makes some very strong statement. It says, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus Christ, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted, but he did not commit sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible says, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth? The Lord Jesus did not commit any sin. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. So if the Lord Jesus Christ was born sinless, committed no sin, why was he going to a baptism of sinners, which is the baptism of John? Why was he engaging in it? Matthew 3, and then we'll read John chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 3, reading from verse 13 to the end, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he, that is Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he, that is John, actually is John here who saw it. That he, John, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Jesus. That is upon him, Jesus. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We're going to see verse 16 and 17 play out in a moment. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to this baptism and John said, But I need to be baptized of you. He said, No, let's do it. Because this is what the Father has ordained. This is what the Father wants us to do. It is in the will of the Father to do it. So let's do it because in doing it, we are fulfilling, accomplishing the purpose, the will, the purpose, the counsel of God. John chapter 1, I read from verse 19 and I read to verse 34. It's a bit lengthy. We may stop in the middle to explain, give some explanations. Now, this is the testimony of John. When Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. These things were done in Bethabara, 
beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So as John was baptizing, they came and said, who are you? Why are you baptizing? Are you the one that is to come? Because everybody was expecting the Christ to come. Are you the one that is to come? Or are we to wait for another? And he said, I am not. He said, who are you? He said, I'm the voice of one. As Isaiah had described, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the crooked path. Turn around. Prepare your hearts for the Lord to come. And so on and so forth. Then we go to verse 29 now. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I did not know him. Please, let's do this now. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. The whole issue of John's baptism was because of Jesus. And you're going to see it in a moment. This baptism was not just something he was doing for cleansing people. No, the baptism was something that was put in place because people will be coming to say, we are repenting, baptize us and so on and so forth. So God put all of that in play. And in verse 32, he says, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. He remained upon I saw when somebody came, I saw the spirit descending and remained on him. In verse 30, it says, I did not know him. I didn't really recognize him. I didn't really have an understanding of who he was. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Why was John baptizing? To show, to point people to Christ. Say, this is the Christ. And that's what Paul was telling those disciples in Ephesus. They were called disciples because it was believed that they were following the word of God. However, their teaching was limited to just repentance, the baptism of John. And so Paul was now telling to them that that baptism was put in place to point to the one that is to come, the one that will baptize in the Holy Spirit, the one whose baptism you really need is pointing to that one. And that one is Jesus. And when they heard it, because their heart had been prepared through repentance, they were open to the baptism in the name of Jesus. Now, some people have said that baptism in the name of Jesus is not really the same thing as baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, which is what the Lord himself gave as a commandment, that they are to be baptized by the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. We don't know why the writers of the Bible began to limit and say they were baptized in the name of Jesus, as though it were completely different from what the Lord commanded. No, the Bible tells us that in him, that is in Christ Jesus, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, we are told that for it pleased the Father, that in him that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell and in verse 20 says and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight so when we talk about baptism, as in water baptism or Christian baptism. It is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is the same thing as baptizing in the name of Jesus. There really isn't any difference. There's no need for us to beat about semantics and other things when we talk about this. So it is clear that John's baptism was limited to the generation that was around when the Lord Jesus Christ came. Because John's baptism was put in place 
Number one, to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Christ, to bring them to the place of repentance. Don't forget that between Malachi and the time that John appeared, there had been about 400 years. There really had not been any true prophet that had appeared after Malachi. Then came John the Baptist. And so John came as a forerunner, as was prophesied of him, and began to prepare the people in their hearts to welcome their Savior, the Messiah, whom they all had been expecting. If you read chapter 1 of John further, you will see there that when Andrew, Peter's brother, went to Peter, he said, the one whom we have been waiting for, we have seen him. So there was an expectation. That was why they went to John the Baptist to say, are you the one or is there another to come? And John said, I'm not the one, but there's one. He's already in the midst. I didn't even know him, but the one who sent me to baptize told me that there's somebody coming to my baptism. That when that person comes to your baptism, the spirit will descend and will remain on him. Whoever that person is, that is the Messiah. So when the Lord Jesus Christ now came, possibly because John knew about Jesus' birth and so on and so forth, he said, I cannot be baptizing you. You are the one to actually baptize me. Why do you want me to baptize you? He said, no, do it for now because we must fulfill all righteousness. Now, had John not done it, there would have been a problem. Because don't forget, I think it's in Matthew chapter 11, and the Bible records that after John was imprisoned, John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or is there another? With all of this, John still had the question. So number one, he continued to baptize. He said, I saw him. The Spirit of God came and lighted on him. Not only that, the Father now spoke from heaven. In the hearing of John, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That statement was not made for the benefit of Jesus. It was made for the benefit of John because John was the one to come and tell people, this is the one. And so John began from the day he got that revelation to point to Christ and say, this is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He is the one who is greater than myself. He has been before me. I may be older than him, but he has been here before I came. He's the one to whom all must respond. We close reading John chapter 3 and again we see something happening here and then we'll use it to round up on what we are trying to discuss here. The issue of purifications, washings and baptism. John chapter 3 from verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification or washings what we now call baptism. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, is baptizing and all are coming to him. So the issue of purification came up and John's disciples were arguing with the Pharisees. I think they must have said, if indeed what your master is doing is the right thing, why is somebody else doing it? That fellow who he baptized, why is he doing it? I don't know what the argument would have been. I'm just trying to imagine and paraphrase it. That does not mean that it is documented in scripture. But there arose an argument, a dispute over this matter of baptizing for purification and so on and so forth. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Nobody can baptize except heaven has given him that permission. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I've been sent to go ahead of him as a forerunner. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John Baptist said, I am like the friend of the bridegroom or the best man who is making sure that the bride is prepared for the groom to come and possess. I cannot be upset 
that the bridegroom has come for his bride. I am happy that the bridegroom has come for his bride. In other words, I came as the best man to Jesus to show the bride that this is the groom that you're waiting for. I am not the groom. I am the groom's friend. He says, so my joy is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. You can see what is happening here. John recognized that his role was done. Whatever it was I was doing was over. This man has now come. Let him take over. There's no need to get involved in, oh, is he greater than you? Are you greater than him? That's not the argument now. So he must increase and I must decrease. I must start leaving the stage and he must take over. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus came from heaven. I came from the earth. He is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. If you receive the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has been in heaven, then you are agreeing that the word of God is true and that God is indeed true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. Jesus Christ did not receive the spirit the way we receive him. We receive the spirit by measure. The Lord Jesus Christ is the spirit. The spirit of God is in him. So he has the fullness of the God in him. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John helps us to arrive at a beautiful conclusion. That when we talk of the teachings about baptisms. Number one, we're not talking of the teachings of ablution. We're not talking of the teachings of washings of purification. We are speaking of something deeper than that. We are not even speaking of the baptism of John. The baptism of John was a baptism unto repentance, which is taken care of by our repentance from sin when we come to Christ at the beginning. So when we talk of baptism, we are speaking more of something more significant than the washings and the purification. We are speaking in the context of Christ, not in the context of a religion, but in the context of Christ himself. It is because of him that we are baptized. We are not baptized because we are Judaists coming to Christ. No, we are not baptized because I used to be a Muslim and I've come into Christ. No, I am baptized because I am showing, I'm proving to the world that I now belong to Christ. We're going to see as we go on that baptism is like an identity card, an identification, an identifier. When you are baptized, you have been identified with Christ, with his leadership, with his authority over you. You are recognized in heaven. You're also recognized by hell. I don't know how true it is, but we're told that when the early Christians were being baptized, the Roman soldiers were present to take the names of those people who were being baptized. Because in that baptism, what they were saying was that Christ was their king, was their Lord, was their master, which was considered heresy because the only known leader of the world then was the emperor, Caesar in Rome. So there was a conflict between Rome and Christ, the empire of Rome and the kingdom of God. There was that conflict. So when Roman citizens went to the baptism, what they were doing essentially was they were renouncing their citizenship of Rome and taking on the citizenship of heaven. So the soldiers of Rome were present to take names of those people so that when the persecution started, they knew where to go to. They knew the people to pick. And yet people went for the baptism. Today, nobody's even challenging anybody. Yet we are quarreling about baptism. There's an argument about who should be baptized and who should not be baptized. And yet baptism is a major plank on which the Christian foundation rests. In Mark chapter 16, from verse 15 of Mark 16, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. 
But he who does not believe will be condemned. You see that the not believing, there was no need to talk about baptism. But if you believe and you are baptized, you'll be saved. Now, the question then is, so what happens if shortly after I believe, I die and there's no room for baptism? Did you believe? Yes, you are okay. There was no time to be baptized. So that's not a problem. In fact, in the early days, what they did was people who were alive stood in the place of the dead to be baptized. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul was discussing about the doctrine of resurrection, and we are going to look at that when we talk of doctrine of resurrection from the dead, he said to them that, why then do you stand in the gap for your brothers who died without being baptized? Why do you get baptized on account of the dead? If the dead do not rise, what is the essence then? So baptism is critical when you are a Christian. However, it is not the same thing as ablution. It is not the same thing as John's baptism. By the grace of God, next week, we shall take a deeper look at the issue of baptisms. We are now going to be looking at what baptisms really are in the Bible because in scripture, we have about four baptisms identified in scripture. Baptism into the body, Christian or water baptism, baptism in the Holy Ghost, and the baptism of suffering. They are documented in scripture. Beginning from next week, by the grace of God, we begin to take a look at these things in a deeper sense. But with this introduction, what we have tried to establish is the fact that the teachings on washings goes beyond the issue of ablution, goes beyond the issue of John's baptism. It rests in the baptism that Jesus Christ came to institute. Every Christian who is living and breathing must experience all four. And as we look at them, we will come to terms with that. Let's go over these things and apprise ourselves with what we have looked at as we look at the scriptures deeper and meditate on these things. By the grace of God, when we see again next week, the Lord will speak deeper to us. Until then, God bless you.